fuzzy versus fussy. To reach a goal, how specific should your plans be? In one carefully controlled experiment, researchers monitored college students taking part in a program to improve their skills at studying. In addition to receiving the usual instructions on how to use time effectively, the students were randomly assigned among three planning conditions. One group was instructed to make daily plans for what, where, and when to study. Another made similar plans only month by month instead of day by day. And a third group, the controls, did not make plans. The researchers felt they were on solid ground in predicting that the day-by-day -day plans would work best. But they were wrong. The monthly planning group did the best in terms of improvements in study habits and attitudes. Among the weaker students, though not among the good ones, monthly planning led to much bigger improvements in grades than did the daily planning. Monthly planners also kept it up much longer than the daily planners, and the continued planning thus was more likely to carry over into their work after the program ended. A year after the program ended, the monthly planners were still getting better grades than the daily planners most of whom by this point had largely abandoned planning, daily or otherwise. Why? Daily plans do have the advantage of letting the person know exactly what he or she should be doing at each moment. But their preparation is time-consuming, because it takes much longer to make 30 daily plans than a broad plan for the month without any daily details. Another drawback of daily plans is that they lack flexibility. They deprive the person of the chance to make choices along the way so the person feels locked into a rigid and grinding sequence of tasks. Life rarely goes according to plan, and so the daily plans can be demoralizing as soon as you fall off schedule. With a monthly plan, you can make adjustments. If a delay arises one day, your plan is still intact. The most extensive experiments in fuzzy versus fussy planning had been the uncontrolled ones run by military leaders on the battlefields of Europe. Napoleon once summarized his idea of strategic military planning, you engage, and then you wait and see. By making contact with the enemy and then improvising, he triumphed and made his armies the envy and the scourge of Europe. His rivals to the north, the Prussians, groped for some advantage to make sure they didn't keep losing to the French, and they came up with more planning. The officer class of other countries ridiculed the idea that soldiers should sit at tables with pen and paper making plans. But the plans turned out to be a genuine advantage, and the next time the two nations fought, the Prussians won a resounding victory. By World War I, everyone was planning. By World War II, Military leaders had the bureaucratic skills for what has been called the most complicated logistical exercise in history, the invasion of Normandy. The Allied force of 160,000 that landed on the beaches wasn't large by the standards of Napoleon, who had marched into Russia with more than 400,000 troops. But the operation was orchestrated so precisely that planners invented their own calendar for a landing on D-Day at precisely H-hour. 1.5 hours after nautical twilight. The to-do list had detailed instructions covering the preparations, like the bombing runs on D3, and then the invasion itself. It continued all the way to D plus 14, 
specifying where reinforcements would arrive a full two weeks after the beginning of the battle. The military planners' confidence might have seemed presumptuous to Napoleon, but their success raised everyone's faith in their powers. After the war, corporate America had new planning heroes, like the Whiz Kids, a group of World War II veterans who reorganized the Ford Motor Company. Their leader was Robert S. McNamara, who before the war had taught accounting at Harvard Business School. He used his mathematical skills to analyze bombing missions in the Army Air Force's Office of Statistical Control, and his success there led to the job at Ford. Then he went back to the military to become Secretary of Defense, introducing the Pentagon to elaborate new planning tools based on principles of systems analysis and reams of data. He seemed the very model of a modern warrior until his plans for the Vietnam War turned out so badly. While he sat in the Pentagon plotting the demise of the enemy based on the casualty statistics he saw, soldiers in the jungle were discovering that they couldn't put any faith in those statistics or plans. The Vietnam debacle gave military leaders a new respect for the need for flexibility, and that lesson was reinforced by the plans that went awry in Iraq and Afghanistan. Sometimes, as Napoleon said, you just have to engage and improvise. So how exactly does a modern general plan for the future? That question was put to a group of them recently by a psychologist who had been invited to give a talk at the Pentagon about managing time and resources. To warm up the elite group of generals, he asked them all to write a summary of their approach to managing their affairs. To keep it short, he instructed each to do this in 25 words or less. The exercise stumped most of them. None of the distinguished men in uniform could come up with anything. The only general who managed a response was the lone woman in the room. She had already had a distinguished career, having worked her way up through the ranks and been wounded in combat in Iraq. Her summary of her approach was as follows. First, I make a list of priorities. One, two, three, and so on. Then I cross out everything from three on down. The other generals might have objected to her approach, arguing that everyone has more than two goals, and that some projects, like, say, D-Day, require more than two steps. But this general was on to something. Hers was a simple version of a strategy for reconciling the long-term with the short-term. The fussy with the fuzzy. She was aiming, as we will see, for a mind like water. Drew Carey's Dream Inbox One day in Hollywood, when faced with the usual dispiriting sight of his desk, Drew Carey had a fantasy. He looked at the mounds of paper and thought, what would David Allen do? Or more precisely, what if I could get David Allen to come here and deal with this stuff? Until that point, Carey was a fairly typical victim of information overload if a celebrity can ever be called typical. He'd starred in his own hit sitcom, run improv comedy shows on television, written a best-selling memoir, hosted game shows, led philanthropic and political causes, owned a soccer team. But none of those challenges was as daunting as his inbox or to-do list. Even with an assistant, he couldn't keep up with the phone calls to return, the scripts to read, the meetings to juggle, 
the charity dinners to MC, the dozens of emails every day requiring an immediate answer. The desk of his home office was littered with unpaid bills, unanswered letters, unfinished tasks, unfulfilled promises. I have self-control in some ways, but not in others, Carrie says. It depends on what's at stake. I just got so fed up with the mess in my office, I had boxes of paperwork and a desk I couldn't get through. Both sides of my computer were piled up with crap and old mail. You know, it was at a point where I couldn't think. I always felt out of control. I always knew I had stuff to do. You can't read a book and enjoy yourself because in the back of your mind you feel like, I should go through those emails I have. You're never really at rest. Carrie had picked up a copy of David Allen's book, Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. Yet the subtitle's bliss continued to elude him. I was reading the book and doing some of the stuff in it, but not all of it. I was so desperate. I finally said, shit, man, I'm rich. And I called him up directly. I contacted his organization and asked how much it would cost if David Allen came out and worked with me personally. He said, for X amount of money, I'll work with you for a whole year. And I said, done. It cost me a lot of money, but I didn't even think about it. However large X was, Carrie's decision makes perfect sense to devotees of GTD, the acronym for Alan's book that has become the name for a system of working and living. But it's not the usual personality-driven cult of self-help gurus and motivational speakers. Alan doesn't offer seven simple rules of life or rouse crowds into frenzies of empowerment. He doesn't offer vague wisdom like, begin with the end in mind or exhortations like, awaken the giant within. He focuses on the minutiae of to-do lists, folders, labels, inboxes. It's a system involving a mental phenomenon that psychologists recognized decades ago, your inner nag, but that wasn't really understood until some recent experiments in Baumeister's laboratory testing ways to silence that inner voice. The experimenters and Alan independently arrived at the same technique, but they took very different paths. Alan did not operate from any psychological theory. He worked strictly by trial and error, starting in his own life with lots of trials and a good deal of error. Coming of age in the 1960s, he studied Zen and Sufi texts, started grad school in history at Berkeley, dropped out, experimented with drugs, punctuated by a brief mental breakdown, taught karate, and worked for a company offering personal growth seminars. Along the way, he paid the bills by being a moped salesman, magician, landscaper, travel agent, glassblower, cab driver, U-Haul dealer, waiter, vitamin distributor, gas station manager, construction worker, and chef. If you had told me in 1968 that I'd end up being a personal productivity consultant, he says, I would have told you that you're out of your mind. He drifted from job to job. He counted 35 by his 35th birthday until his skill at running seminars led to invitations to work with executives at Lockheed and other corporations. As weird as this resume path sounds, Allen sees a certain consistency in the progression from philosophy, mind-altering drugs, and karate to personal growth trainer and corporate consultant. He describes it all as a quest for mental peace, for a mind like water, the phrase he borrows from his karate lessons. Imagine throwing a pebble into a still pond. 
How does the water respond? The answer is totally appropriately to the force and mass of the input. Then it returns to calm. It doesn't over or underreact. You can get a sense of this philosophy by visiting his office, which will produce a severe case of desk envy. You would expect an efficiency expert to be orderly, but it's still a shock to arrive at his company's headquarters in Ojai, a small town in the mountains of Southern California near Santa Barbara, and see the complete absence of paperwork or any kind of clutter. On the right side of his L-shaped desk are three stacked wooden trays, all utterly empty, including his inbox. On the left side are another two trays with a dozen books and magazines, which are his to-read pile for airplane trips. Otherwise, his desk is immaculate. In accordance with the four Ds of his system, everything that has not been done, delegated, or dropped has been deferred to a half-dozen two-drawer file cabinets, which contain his alphabetized plastic folders with labels printed by the little machine next to his computer. You might dismiss this all as evidence of dreary anal retentiveness, but Alan could not be less doer or more relaxed. When he began working with overtaxed executives, he saw the problem with the traditional big-picture type of management planning, like writing mission statements, defining long-term goals, and setting priorities. He appreciated the necessity of lofty objectives, but he could see that these clients were too distracted to focus on even the simplest task of the moment. Alan described their affliction with another Buddhist image, monkey mind, which refers to a mind plagued with constantly shifting thoughts like a monkey leaping wildly from tree to tree. Sometimes Alan imagined a variation in which the monkey is perched on your shoulder, jabbering into your ear, constantly second-guessing and interrupting until you want to scream, somebody shut up the monkey. Most people have never tasted what it's like to have nothing on their mind except whatever they're doing. Alan says. You could tolerate that dissonance and that stress if it only happened once a month, the way it did in the past. Now people are just going numb and stupid or getting too crazy and busy to deal with the anxiety. Instead of starting with goals and figuring out how to reach them, Alan tried to help his clients deal with the immediate mess on their desks. He could see the impracticality of traditional bits of organizational advice like the old rule about never touching a piece of paper more than once. Fine in theory, impossible in practice. What were you supposed to do with a memo about a meeting next week? Alan remembered a tool from his travel agent days, the tickler file. The meeting memo, like an airplane ticket, could be filed in a folder for the day it was needed. That way, the desk would remain uncluttered and the memo wouldn't distract you until the day it was needed. Alan's tickler file, 31 folders for each day of the current month, 12 folders for each of the months, would become so widely copied that his followers used it for the name of a popular life hacker website, 43folders.com. Besides getting paperwork off the desk, the tickler file also removed a source of worry. Once something was filed there, you knew you'd be reminded to deal with it on the appropriate day. You weren't nagged by the fear that you'd lose it or forget about it. Alan looked for other ways to eliminate that mental nagging by closing the open loops in the mind. One piece I took from the personal growth world was the importance of the agreements you make with yourself, he recalls. When you make an agreement and you don't keep it, you undermine your own self-trust. You can fool everybody but yourself, and you're going to pay for that, 
so you should be aware of the agreements you make. We developed a workshop for writing down those agreements. There was, of course, nothing revolutionary about the strategy of listing one's commitments and goals. The Make-A-List strategy has been in every self-help program since Noah's Ark and the Ten Commandments. But Alan made refinements with the help of a veteran management consultant named Dean Acheson, not the former Secretary of State. To help his clients eliminate distractions, Acheson started off by having them write down everything that had their attention, large and small, professional and personal, distal and proximal, fuzzy and fussy. They didn't have to analyze or organize or schedule anything, but in each case, they did have to identify the specific next action to be taken. Dean sat me down and had me empty my head, Alan says. I've done a lot of meditating and considered myself highly organized, so I thought I already had my shit together, but I was blown away by the results. I thought, look at what this does. As Alan went on to work with his own clients, he preached the importance of the next action, or NA, as GTDers call it. The to-do list was not supposed to have items like birthday gift for mom or due taxes. It had to specify the very next action, like drive to jewelry store or call accountant. If your list has right thank you notes, that's a fine next action, as long as you have a pen and cards, Alan says. But if you don't have the cards, you'll know subliminally that you can't write the notes, so you'll avoid the list and procrastinate. That distinction might sound easy enough to learn, but people get it wrong all the time. When Alan hears that John Tierney has been inspired by the book to install a GTD organizer on his smartphone, Alan promptly offers to bet that most of the items in the next action list won't be immediately doable. Sure enough, he finds the list dominated by imperatives like contact mint.com researchers, or consult Esther Dyson about self-control. Much too vague for GTD standards. How are you going to contact or consult them? Alan asks. Do you already have the phone number or email address? Have you decided whether to call or email? That dumb little distinction matters. Everything on that list is either attracting or repulsing you. If you say, consult Esther, because you haven't finished thinking exactly what you're going to do next, there's a part of you that doesn't want to look at the list. You're walking around with this subliminal anxiety. But if you put down, email Esther, you think, oh, I can do that, and you move forward until you finish something. A few years ago, when the technology writer Danny O'Brien sent a questionnaire asking 70 of the most sickeningly over-prolific people he knew for their organizational secrets, most said they didn't use special software or other elaborate tools. But a good many did say they followed the GTD system, which doesn't require anything more complicated than pen, paper, and folders. As yet, there's no body of peer review research comparing GTDers with a control group. But there is evidence in the psychological literature of the mental stress that Alan observed. Psychologists have also been studying how to eliminate the monkey mind. They just use a different term for it. 